This is Media Moves, the podcast for executives to make sense of the perpetually moving media landscape. I'm Adam Ryan. If you scroll Twitter for more than a minute, you see dozens of opinions on how Web3 changes the media industry. The problem? You don't hear from people actually building a media company in Web3. In this episode, you'll hear from Daisy Alioto, co-founder of Dirt, which is the GQ of Web3. She'll get into why Web3 has massive potential, where the infrastructure won't apply, and how to develop your audience using data in this new era. I learned a ton in this one. Let's dive in. Media executives usually juggle a dozen different priorities. I know I certainly do. That's why I love how easy sale through makes it to run marketing campaigns that drive a crazy amount of value in less time. They're the perfect platform to turn your curious users into loyal customers. Head to salethrough.com to check them out or via the link in the description. And now let's get into today's episode. All right, getting into this. Uh, welcome Daisy Alato from Dirt. Uh, thank you for coming on Perpetual. Thank you for having me. So for background about Daisy, I've been working pretty closely with her while she's building Dirt Out, uh, which is the LVMH of Web3. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, we describe it as the GQ of Web3 to the LVMH of tomorrow in the sense that it's currently one newsletter brand that's integrated with e-commerce on the blockchain, but in the future will be the umbrella for a lot of new brands in the Web3 luxury space. Awesome. And your background, you've worked everywhere from Houdenki to Condé Nast, Time, and a bunch of others, mostly focused on audience development. I think you're world-class at that. And particularly now, focusing on audience development, kind of meeting this new Web3 technology. So I'd love to get in the weeds of that. And that would be the topic of our tactical breakdown today. I'm really excited to dive in. This is my favorite topic. Perfect. So Explain audience development in the way I feel like it's one of those pieces of media that a lot of legacy companies have audience development managers. A lot of modern media companies have it's not a hire until you cross 75, 100 people. It's a unique skill set. What is the advantage of investing in an audience development manager as a media company? I've definitely seen it all and I've seen the title go through a bunch of different changes. I'm often the first person that's brought in to work in a dedicated way on social media or community at a media company. And early on, it was really big media companies who were catching up in the space. But now, like you said, crossing that 75 person mark, I've come into some startups who are just at the point where they wanna invest in it. And I'm biased, but I would say this should be one of your first hires because it really encompasses a lot of different functions. So what do I mean by the fact that the title has gone through a lot of changes? Early on, it might have been called a social media manager, social media editor. In time, audience engagement was more of the buzzword. And then now it's more so audience development or even marketing. And like Web3, these are titles that contain a lot of different functions. So under my role that has been you know, drawing from these various titles over the years, my functions have always included developing a social media presence, a different sort of cadence and tone that has to be platform appropriate. So you can't talk to your Facebook audience the way that you 
necessarily talk to your Twitter audience or Instagram audience. You have to have some understanding of community, whether that's a comment section that lives on social media or reader letters that you get via email or subscriber letters or a newsletter that goes out knowing sort of what is the demographics of that subscriber base compared to the people that follow you on Facebook or Instagram. Um, And also analytics. Analytics is a huge part of it. And with Web3, there's a lot of information that's available about people by wallet address. But as you know, like part of the draw for people is the anonymity, sorry, um, that goes along with that wallet address. So in trying to create analytics around who Dirt is, I've definitely had to be more creative about the analytics that are available because those layers of analysis haven't been built yet. I know that they're actively being built, but for us, we have about 160 token holders, so 160 wallets. We're still at the point where thankfully we can manually go through all of those wallets and the amount of information that I've been able to gather just from manually going through our token holder wallets is like immense. So we know how many unique buyers we've had for our NFTs. We know that 34% of wallets that hold a DIRT NFT actually made their first transaction with DIRT. And we also know that the average DIRT token holder spent $584 on DIRT NFTs, and they have around 60 NFTs in their wallet. And that information is like so incredible. And also just the qualitative, like, you click through all of the wallets and I feel like I'm able to come away knowing a little bit about every token holder's personal taste where I'm at the point where I can look at a piece of artwork that we might want to cover in the newsletter and say the community will like this or they won't like it because I have this picture in my head that's a composite of all of our community wallets, which I've taken the time to go through and see and investigate. Um, And in time, like there will be layers that will allow us to click a couple of buttons and know what are the overlap between these wallets. You know, how many of our community holders also have like a world of women NFT or a board ape yacht club NFT. And some of this already exists, but I kind of like that we are so lo-fi that I'm just like scrolling through these token holder wallets and understanding more about them as a person. And I think some of the conversations that I've had where people have asked, well, what's the gender breakdown of your subscription list or, you know, where they live or what's your target demo for income? These questions are holdovers from Web2 where people, you know, advertisers or marketers are asking those demographic questions because they're trying to predict what people will buy. Well, we know what people are buying. So I'm way more interested at looking at what is in these wallets you know, what scale are people collecting on? How early in their collecting journey is dirt? Then I am knowing what is the gender breakdown of our subscriber list. Of course, that's important. But if you think about why those questions were developed, or even like the purpose of a focus group, when you have DAO governance, you don't need a focus group, because the focus group is directing itself. So I think even though my background is in media, and, you know, starting out as a social media intern at NPR, actually, Over time, it's developed to encompass more marketing type thinking and the divisions between editorial and e-commerce, as you know, are way less defined than they were when news organizations or media organizations first started using social media. So audience development is a lot richer than it used to be. It's pretty lo-fi right now in Web3, but there's a lot of exciting glimmers for 
the information that we're going to be able to have about people. And I feel like I've already been able to learn a lot just by bringing my audience development background to the information that we do have. One of the things that I think media industry execs make constantly make this mistake constantly is they don't ask, why are we doing this? Which you just made such a good point, right? Why do we collect this information on on our audience? Do we care about what they are? Do we care what they're buying? You know, of course, if you have the information that they bought a $100,000 NFT, like, you know, their discretionary income, right? If you see that they're, they're in pool suite, like they clearly have a lifestyle that they like live, you don't need to like survey your audience, you have that already. So are you saying that you right now manually go through that? Is that like the tactic is actually go through every address? Yeah, I have a spreadsheet of all of our token holders, like Etherscan just lets you download a CSV. Um, So that was my project last weekend, because we keep it pretty updated too. Wow. Yeah, as more people come in, like I want to know, you know, has the true average amount spent shifted? Um, And it's also just a way to keep in touch or, you know, a sense of keeping in touch with the community. I think one thing that is a pain point for us right now is that there is no way to directly reach NFT buyers. But if we have an accurate list of their wallets, an updated list of their wallets, as those layers are being built in time, there will be a way to reach them. Um, It also is like, the more engaged we can keep people in the newsletter, the more likely we can get them into Discord, which becomes another point of engagement. So some of these wallets, we could also glean email addresses and, and Twitter addresses. And where we have those Twitter accounts, we definitely have made an effort to reach them directly and make sure that they've onboarded themselves into the DAO as well. But some people are completely anonymous and the only NFT in their wallet is dirt and or dirt and like something else random. And to be honest, those are like some of my favorite people because... <laughs> I'm just filling the mystery in my head. Yeah, you just get to kind of guess who they are. And it's no different than like, you know, I I think 15 years ago, there was no way to like identify people through their email address, right? Like there was not like great tools. It makes you wonder about all the tools that are possible for the next gen of of Web3 of helping, helping maybe not identify, but aggregate information about about those, those addresses. When you're kind of thinking about, you know, I like to say that media is just an execution game. Like there's no patent that you can take out on content. There's just like simply building a brand and, and executing every single day. Uh, Dirt has a newsletter that goes out every day, building a brand. I love your shirts. I'm a big fan, very soft. <laughs> but walk us through how you see your team effectively executing this game. Like what what are you doing on for your core product right now that you're like, wow, this is going to differentiate us in the space? Definitely. I think because Web3 is a space coming out of the technology industry filled with people leaving their tech to or web two tech jobs to be participants. There's a little bit of a bias towards software and technology. And when people talk about building a media company, what they really mean is they want to build the technology or the software infrastructure and they want to plug the content in less. And, you know, to your point, like, it's an execution game. So could somebody taking that route still end up with a really popular media company? Yes. But the part that they wouldn't be able to skip was the storytelling part, the story about the brand. And to me, like the odds that you're going to have really good technology, really bad content, but a really good story about the brand and be able to sustain that is are pretty low. Like maybe a company like Aussie, I mean, we all remember what happened with that. And and by the time the truth came out about the company, it's like, how did they get this far? Um, and it's because they had a 
a good website, they had a good story and they had investors. But I, because I come from a media background, do believe that content is king. And I think in Web3, you don't have to sacrifice focusing on content over technology or technology over content. To me, building a sustainable Web3 media brand is itself a form of technology. And not everyone agrees, but it's applying technical thinking to the problem of how can we create more value in what it means to be a subscriber. And what Dirt has come to is essentially a flywheel chart where subscribers are consumers, are investors. Subscribers become consumers, consumers become investors through membership in the DAO. And those investors create more value for the people who are still only engaging on a subscription basis, a free subscription basis. And so this self-sustaining ecosystem, to me, is proprietary technology because, yes, somebody else could go out and execute it, but they would also have to have the content that we have, the story that we have, the brand that we have, the passionate community that we have. I hope people do replicate the Dirt playbook, and we certainly plan to replicate it ourselves as we sort of build towards being more of a media conglomerate rather than one single brand. But I think the mistake people are making in Web3 is not putting the content where it needs to be in the hierarchy of what people are worried about when they're saying media. (laughs) And also, like, when somebody says media, like, that can mean a lot of different things to different people. Some people say media and they mean, like, sports and movies and television shows. Some people say media and they just mean the New York Times. So coming to a shared definition of, well, what is media is important when you're you're in web three as well because you know you have companies like hello sunshine adapting world of women into films and and that is media but the people who report on that and contextualize that and curate information around what does this really mean for the film industry will these movies even be good that's media as well and that is more likely i think to be the on-ramp than a single film or a single television show about web three there's a piece of that you touched on of like the difference of of how media is defined. And I think right now so many people are focusing on the the rails and the infrastructure of Web3, which is very fair. It's it's building the infrastructure that could be a difference. But when you think about building, in your own words, a media business, how do you tell that story? Like that's what to me what Dirt has done that's special. That's like and you're you've talked about basically retention. And that's, you know, just to to kind of clue everyone in listening that maybe not be as familiar with Web3, right? If you're a token holder, which means that you're a, you know potentially a subscriber, right, to the to the membership, there's in Web2, you focus primarily on getting people into your ecosystem. But in Web3, it's really about retaining people. The more value you can create, the more value that the token goes up, the more value the membership is, and then more people stay. There's a lot of really good examples of that, but it's it's really shifting the priority of retention instead of introduction. How do you do that with storytelling? I want to sort of take a step back, and this goes along with talking about how did social media editor become audience engagement editor, become audience development editor, and look at the trends that have happened in media just in the decade or so that I've been in the space. So, you know, we have print advertising becoming digital advertising, which is not as lucrative for the publication as print advertising. You have the pivot to video, a lot of which was informed by 
metrics that came from Facebook that may or may not have been accurate and resulted in like a lot of people losing their jobs and a lot of media companies investing really pretty strongly in video when that might not have been the best thing for their brand. There's also the cycle of bundling and unbundling, which I think we've been cycling through over the last decade and right now is most apparent in writers who have left prestige publications to start their own newsletters on, say, a Substack or a Patreon, and then those own those same writers being paid to come back into the fold of the Atlantic or the New York Times, etc. And I think it's worth asking, well, what will bundling and unbundling look like in Web3? And then the biggest trend, which we actually cover a lot in Dirt, so there's a little bit of a meta commentary here, but the trend of intellectual property and secondary intellectual property actually being a lot more lucrative than the first iteration of the story. So we see there's studios who will approach journalists to write. A good example is the Daily Beast story about the McDonald's monopoly contest grifters that got glossed over because their trial started around the same time as the 9-11 attacks somebody came to the journalist and had this story. They'd gone through old newspaper archives looking for stuff. The journalist writes the story. The story is acquired by a movie studio, or I think maybe in this case, Netflix. I think HBO. Exactly. For a lot more money than I'm sure the Daily Beast paid them to write this article. So this is a huge trend as well. And I think it's also apparent in the way the NFTs function, right? Like one thing that we've said is, the secondary market is the primary market. That's true in intellectual property and traditional media where every article, it's not just an article, it's thinking about the potential for that article to become a movie, a series, a character, a toy, a you know, maybe even a theme park, not necessarily in news media, but for sure in movies. You know, making a movie like a Legoland, knowing that there's going to be a line of toys drawing from this film or knowing that there's going to be a ride at Disneyland about this film before the film's even been created. And the way that this translates into Web3 is that people buy things with the intention to resell them. They buy them thinking about how will this be resold or how will this NFT community eventually become a product line, a t-shirt, a movie, a series, a game token. Um, I think gaming is huge in this. And so we see all these trends over the last decade in media. And my perspective as I'm founding Dirt is how do we take what's working in traditional media and not, you know, for the wheels that aren't broken, not fix them. But how do we take what's not working, throw it out and substitute something that's working in Web3? And the things that Web3 enables are that Web2 doesn't are subscriber governance, knowing what people are actually buying without knowing their traditional demographics, which we just talked about, integrated editorial e-commerce. So like a Hodinkee or a Food52, you know, Hodinkee started out as one guy's blog and now they sell watches. But if Hodinkee was founded today as a Web3 company, they would be writing about NFTs and selling NFTs at the same time because the overhead to sell a blockchain product is so much lower. But what we're not throwing out is the idea of a subscriber. Subscribers are always going to exist. Uh, We're not necessarily throwing out advertising revenue or referrals. I know referrals have been really big for work week. Web3 companies need a place to advertise and they need places to refer them and they need good media to refer to. So that's something that we're keeping. I really see Dirt as like 
a pinpoint on this timeline of media history. We're at this really pivotal moment right now where we've seen all these trends unfold and we have a decision of whether we want to continue through the same cycles and see which media companies survive, probably just like three big ones, or whether we want to embrace new technology and enable a lot of new nascent media companies. And if Dirt by being early can really be among the top of those. I'm a big believer in the power of niche audiences. Who is paying attention is more important than how many people are paying attention. Sailthrough is the perfect partner for executives who want to drive value for the very best people in their audience. I love their focus on maximizing engagement while you scale, so you can build meaningful relationships with the people who actually move the needle for your business. Head to sailthrough.com, that's S-A-I-L-T-H-R-U.com to check them out or visit the link in our description. I think the piece that you were pointing to is there's great things about web two in terms of like referral systems and subscribers. There's parts of web three that are going to fix what was broken around web two with IP, et cetera. I think that is wonderful. It's created this time period right now though, that many call web 2.5. Yeah. What the hell does that mean? I think web 2.5 is really a hybrid model of what's working in web two and what can be fixed by web three. The reason why I think 2.5 is important is while I would love to say, yes, the future is web three, let's go full native. You have to build your audience as you're speaking to them, right? This technology is so new that in order for media to be an adequate on-ramp for people. So like a dirt reader, like we hear anecdotally from people, I bought my first NFT because of dirt. In order to be an on-ramp for those people, we can't use the newsletter as like this cudgel where we're forcing people to adopt the technology. It has to be a really great balance of exposing them to the, the technology, but also like normalizing NFTs as part of digital culture in the same way that TikTok is part of digital culture and Netflix is part of digital culture. So you read the newsletter and like 25% of it is about Web3, 75% is about A24 films, TikTok trends, streaming trends, what's going on at Spotify. And so people don't feel like they're being forced into something. But the takeaway effect is that when we say we're writing about digital culture and critiquing digital culture, people in time come to understand that like NFTs and the blockchain technology and the entertainment possibilities that that enables are here to stay as part of digital culture. And they start to have a framework to really interpret for themselves. Do I want to be involved? Do I not want to be involved? Here's how to discriminate between a project that's actually interesting and doing something useful and this project that's a dud. I kind of call bullshit on like Web 2.5 because like the reality is I don't think Web 2 and Web 3 are going away, either one. Like I see the the absolute benefits. The reality is like it's just creating a new normal is like a company can have potentially traditional advertising while using NFTs as subscribers, right? Like for subscriber models that there's going to be a mix of both of those. And that's the future that I see together. That's why when when people say Web 2.5, I'm like, you're just talking about like a modern media company and defining it by like technology frameworks is like almost distracting from what what it's actually solving uh, in many ways. So one of the next things I wanted to get to is just some predictions. So the second part of what we're doing at Media Moves is saying, what will the industry look like in 12 months? And I'd love for you to, to throw out what you think 
you know, specifically, let's like focus on like the luxury goods space, the the GQ to LVMH, right? Like what does the luxury goods media space look like in 12 months? Definitely. So I'm going to start out with like a few problems that I think we need to solve. And then I have two really great examples of the direction I think things are going, um, drawing from other really smart thinkers. So the problems that need to be solved right now are that the aesthetics in Web3 aren't great. Sometimes they're outright bad. And luxury is all about aesthetics, right? And taste making. And so we see dirt as really injecting some of this taste making and cultural context into the space. And I think that's really important because a lot of our subscribers are, they really care about aesthetics. Like they're very fashionable people. Our DAO was just in business of fashion, which is, you know, incredible trade publication for the fashion industry. And I think that we really need to live up to that by, you know, maintaining a hard line about looking for beauty in Web3 and not just profits. Um, The other problems I think right now that we're facing are it's hard to reach NFT buyers. I think I alluded to that before when you have somebody's wallet, you don't necessarily have their email address. And also that Ethereum is really expensive and a lot of people perceive it as bad for the environment because in the current iteration it is. So with Ethereum 2.0, I think the sell will get a lot easier. And we've seen in the luxury space, sustainability is a really important topic. So the luxury equivalent in Web3 needs to be sustainably minded as well. But for predictions, I wanted to share two things that I came across in the past couple of days that I think are really amazing frameworks for understanding where the industry is going. One comes from the other internet, and it's an article called The Lore Zone, L-O-R-E. And it's talking about how younger people, basically Gen Z, the perception of them is that they're all interested in being influencers and like personal brands. But actually, they're really interested in moving through digital spaces that each have their own lore, backstory, memes and symbols that operate within these digital spaces. And they want to be able to embody various roles and play different versions of themselves as they move through these close-knit internet communities. And so this is a big departure from the sort of traditional marketing viewpoint of Gen Z as just wanting to have the biggest audience. And I think it's a rejection of the algorithm, which creates things that are like made for everybody and therefore nobody. And also it's like a return to this like smaller, more closer knit internet where you can get your identity from subscribing to Dirt or owning a Dirt NFT or maybe even playing like a table role play game where you're like encountering different characters. So that's super important. And then the other thing that just came out today in the sociology of business, which is Anna Angelik's newsletter, it's incredible. She coins the term Cortez goods. Cortez is, uh, I believe, an outerwear brand. They conducted this event where people could get a Cortez coat that they hadn't yet seen by turning in a coat that they already owned. So they were taking this coat that had no market value, nobody had seen, but had all of this sort of like cultural intrigue around it. And people were turning in their Canada goose coats, their Montclair coats, coats that like actually have real price tag attached to them just for the opportunity to try this coat that nobody had seen. And then they donated all the other coats to charity. And so she calls it Cortez goods as like an alternative to an economic model like Veblen. And the principle of this new economic model is that people exchange a more expensive, better known good with lower cultural currency for a cheaper, lesser known one with higher cultural currency. And I think that that's another thing that we're going to see in the luxury industry moving forward. 
I would challenge you to say, I think that's going to be everywhere. Yeah. I think particularly with media companies, but like in general, I think cultural starting to define value. And if the more culturally relevant something is, and that cultural relevance is mystery, timeliness, uh, everything that makes up exactly what the example you just said, that's, that's where I think the industry is moving. So I agree with you, but I think it's even wider than just luxury goods. Yeah. I mean, could you see somebody like exchange their Rolex for an NFT they haven't seen? I don't know. Like maybe if they really trusted the people it was coming from. Well, and then that's like the the piece of being culturally relevant, though, is how do you yeah. build trust? And I think it's actually like being showing that you're like of the time. Yeah. Uh, and all right. So two questions for you. In five years, what's one thing in media that you think will just be totally different? And then what's one thing that you think will be the exact same? I think that there will be better channels of communication between subscribers and media platforms where subscribers will be making more decisions, whether that's through DAOs or something that is DAO-like. The example that I always use to explain how a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization, could be used for a publication that already exists is when the New York Times spun off their games and their cooking sections to be separate subscriptions, which is itself kind of an innovation on the newspaper subscription model, if they had enacted a form of subscriber governance in which the best recipe comments could form permanent navigable content like a letterboxed for recipes, or people who do crosswords could actually vote on the themes of future puzzles or guest editors, that would be a very sort of publication appropriate adaptation of the Dow model to the New York Times, where you don't have people voting on which politicians to investigate. But within the cultural section of the newspaper, you're giving subscribers a lot more value and input. So I think that that's something that we'll see. I don't know if DAOs will be the winning version of that. I think that their best version of that right now, which is why we have one, but they might be replaced by something better. We could be looking at the floppy disk version of subscriber governance right now. I think that's really fair, though. And like using the Times as example is such a solid way to talk about subscriber input because like the reality was the times probably made that decision based off a ton of research and audience interaction yeah and to your point like you don't need focus groups as you said earlier if you actually have a relationship with your audience like be a DAO anyway so it's it's great what do you think will be the exact same there's a lot of conversation about personality driven journalism and the sort of end of objectivity i think having a lack of bias or very transparent competing interests or motivations will always be important. Like dirt is cultural journalism, but not all journalism is going to function like cultural journalism. And I would argue that it's a lot easier to create a DAO around recipes than it is to create a DAO around the future of the WikiLeaks papers or the Snowden archive. Somebody might try to do that, but there's a lot more potential for bad actors And so I think what's not going to go away is like objectivity, but like also just gatekeeping. Like already, I think we're hedging a little bit away from this idea of complete decentralization. Um, And I can give you a really good example from the Dirt DAO. So we've actually done two votes now on editorial ideas. So writers send in their ideas. I number them. And then the members of the DAO are able to use their tokens to allocate to their favorite story ideas. And then the two top ideas are greenlit and they run in the newsletter. 
the first vote, I didn't cap the number of pitches. I just included all of the ones that I thought were interesting and appropriate. So there was already a layer of curation, though, because I read everything and I only included the ones that I thought we wanted to see in the newsletter. After that first vote, the members of the DAO came back and they actually wanted more curation. They wanted me to cap them at 10 next time. And they wanted each to be around two paragraphs. So they wanted them to be about the same length. And so as an editor, I was thinking, oh, they want the editor experience, which is when stuff comes to me, it comes at all different lengths, all different formats. And that's the experience I gave them. And they actually said, no, we want, we kind of want less choice, right? We want less choice, more curation. We don't want to be the editor. We want you to be the editor. And we want everything to come to us more neatly packaged, capped at 10 and the same length. And that was a really interesting learning because they were happy with the level of choice that they had. And they actually were happy for Kyle and I to sort of add another layer of gatekeeping, which we wouldn't have known if we hadn't conducted that vote. And if we didn't have like a really engaged community. It's interesting. The object objectivity aspect is something that I think can be distracting for those trying to have a conversation about moving media into web three, because there are going to be, objective-minded people or say like, how do you do the Snowden report in a DAO? There's no way it ever happens. And you're right. Like it probably doesn't. And so I actually completely agree with you that that's probably going to be the exact same thing stays. All right. uh, So the last segment of media moves is I uh, read a newsletter every week uh, called perpetual Uh, a couple of weeks ago or so I wrote about Disney, which This is a quick, uh, we were going to talk about the Hallmark episode, but uh, the Disney one, I think based on something you said is a better fit where Disney has an Imagineers team. They build products and services that are off of their characters that enhance their user experiences that innovates on their business model. The Imagineers team is like one of the underlying reasons Disney's had the success they've had the last 50, 60 years. So you have a vision for dirt. You're a newsletter right now. Maybe from an outside perspective, people would say, oh, you're just like a newsletter company that's like sold some NFTs, like sweet. But you have a much grander vision than that. How do you imagine building out a dirt, building non-media products downstream? And how do you think about doing that tactically? I mean, I think it comes back to the question of lore, though, right? Like Disney's advantage is lore. And we actually published an article today by my co-founder, Kyle, Kyle Cheka, about the idea of narrative hangover and the number of movies and blockbusters that come out now like dune where it's like there's actually no backstory in it and if you actually want to understand the lore or certain things that happen in the movie you have to go to reddit or you have to read the books or you have to play the video game witcher is another example of this um and i think we're entering a period where you know disney's adventures was lore now everything's going to have lore and the idea of lore might mean different things for different types of products so you know is a shirt going to have a backstory No, but it'll have the storytelling equivalent. It might have a community around it. I mean, look at the brand Telfar. They're rolling out Telfar TV, which is going to be like essentially like a 24-7 cable show where these QR codes pop up. You have user-generated content. You can get early access to their new products, their new bags. This is a fashion brand with like a really strong community. And I would argue almost like a lore around their product. And so for dirt, it's taking this sort of literal speck of a brand, you know, we picked this speck of dirt, anthropomorphized speck of dirt as our icon, because dirty, our mascot is supposed to represent something that's so ubiquitous, 
like dirt, but is also in a sense, all seeing through being a little bit invisible, a little bit ubiquitous. So when you're talking about digital culture, we're sort of thinking ourselves as this speck of dirt sort of rolling through the internet and picking up what's interesting and bringing it back. And so I think that there is a little bit of lore to dirty and, you know, I'll send emails to people and they'll respond. Thank you, dirty, like as if dirty has sent them the email. And so there's definitely a seed of that there. Right. And so, you know, whether that becomes a dirt plushie or a dirt sneaker worth hundreds of dollars, the lore is there. And I think Disney's going to have more competition as more and more people sort of pick up on this. Do I think Board Ape Yacht Club is the next Disney? I don't know. <laughs> Are you making the argument, though, that in many ways, the storytelling and buy-in aspect is harder than like the logistics and tactical, right? there, Because there's two different business models. There's whole companies that focus on plush toys, right? Um, so how do you, do you think that is... As a media company, you're able to to have both of those focuses be separate? I think storytelling is everything. I think it's more important than owning sort of the means of your own production or your own supply chain. That sort of control is like really important. Of course, we want to own our subscriber list. And if the technology doesn't exist for something that we need to dirt for dirt to move forward, we would certainly build it. But there's also a lot to be said for like strategic collaborations, like the Supreme have to have a direct connection to the skateboard factory that makes the decks that they co-brand? No. So in the sense that co-branding has become really important, I think what we're going to see is like less people being precious about controlling their own execution and more collaborations that look more like this brand's lore X, this brand's lore in the same way that we've seen like Supreme make a Metro card. It's always an interesting depending on who you ask is, you know, ultimately everyone wants a brand, but like some companies build pride themselves on logistics and operations, right? Amazon's website is like straight out of like 2005 still, and they'd argue vice versa. And I think the perspective that you're taking is that storytelling's first, which like Disney, obviously. And I think that's the difference of if you've, you know, we talked about defining a media company. My take is like a media company it doesn't matter how you make money. What a media company does is prioritize storytelling and brand where like commerce companies prioritize like product and operations. And the best ones like Supreme can do both, right? I consider Supreme a media company, but like obviously they don't sell advertising. So that's kind of my like viewpoint on on that. But this was like such a great conversation. I don't think there are many people out there that understand audience development as well as you who've also spanned it from web two to web three. Also hearing about people being able to vote on editorial products, I think is a big topic of discussion around other media operators. So thank you, Daisy, for giving your time today to Media Moves. Yeah, thank you so much. I do want to say like, if all you have is a brand, then you're very vulnerable. But I think you and I also like we both recognize the power of good storytelling. So It's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Daisy. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay ahead of media's next move, then make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. I'll see you next time.